Welcome back to another episode of Savvy Citizen, the podcast by and about Gaston County. I'm Elizabeth McGee, your host today. Joining me is Heather Kaufman and Brittany Fronig, program managers at Lighthouse and Hope United Survivor Network, as well as Molly Weekland, who's the special events and marketing coordinator at Hope United. We'll be talking about their annual fundraising event, Threads of Hope, which is going to be on October 12th. Tickets are available for purchase now, and all proceeds go to benefit the Lighthouse Children's Advocacy Center, Kathy Mabry Cloninger Center, and Hope United Survivor Network. So why don't we start off um, by introducing Threads of Hope. Um, I'm I'm actually going to Threads of Hope. This is my first time ever coming, um, so I don't really know what I'm in for. You're in for a treat. That's what you're in for. <laughs> so Threads. this is our third year doing Threads of Hope. And this is our annual fundraiser that benefits all of our programs. So we do it during Domestic Violence Awareness Month just because uh, we see that that touches so many areas of so many of the survivors we interact with. Mm-hmm. So whether it's through the CAC, through the shelter, or through Hope United, the Family Justice Center, um, we interact with lots of different survivors who are who have been impacted by domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So the event is going to be October 12th. Um, our keynote speaker is Janine Lattice, and she is going to share her story of what it was like to break the cycle of abuse um, and get out of a domestic violence relationship in parallel with her sister's story um, where she was murdered at the hands of her abuser. So they have very parallel stories until they didn't. And so um, it's really powerful. It's going to be an impactful night. Um, I think for survivors, we uh, raised a little over $50,000 last year and we're hoping to raise more this year. Tickets are on sale either through our website, www.hopeunitedgaston.com, or you can find them on any of our Facebook pages. We are constantly posting about the event. So everybody is welcome. It is an after work event. Come as you are. We have some really exciting raffle items, such as a trip to Iceland, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Brazil, Nashville, Tennessee, Sonoma, California. These are really good options. I know. And it, you get to pick. And you have two years to, to book, so yeah. no pressure. Uh, but the winner gets to pick where they would want to go. Um, and tickets are only $10. So, yeah. Tickets for the raffle basket are only $10 for the grand prize. And then event tickets are 50 That sounds like a pretty good deal. And yeah. supports a really good cause. It truly does. And 100% of the proceeds due to... An, overwhelming response from our sponsors um 100 percent of the of what we raise from this point forward will go towards survivors so oh my gosh that's amazing yeah. congratulations we, thanks <laughs> thanks we're excited so it's going to be things like something for a child that we're serving at the cac uh, maybe they can't go back to their house and get it mm-hmm. because it's not safe um, same with the shelter the shelter operates very much like a home so anything that you would need at your home um that can we kind of run the gamut of all of the things at the shelter. Uh, so it would serve families who are actively fleeing domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And then at Hope United, the Family Justice Center and also the court-based services, it would serve survivors who maybe are um, going through the court process. So mm-hmm. maybe they need a security camera. Mm-hmm. They've got a protective order in place or something like that, but they need that extra layer of security. So these are unrestricted funds that can be used to meet those needs because they are vastly different from one survivor to the next. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what are the typical types of needs? I mean, it seems like every situation is unique, pretty much. 
That is true. Um, they are. And it each we have survivors who but for one barrier would be able to break that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that is transportation. Mm-hmm. So maybe they have access to a car, but it's it's doesn't have uh, it, it needs new brakes or um, they but for being able to get into housing that was on the bus line, they could work and support their families and then they wouldn't be reliant on that abuser. Mm-hmm. Um, but for therapy or other therapeutic tools that we would be able to provide, they would be able to again break the cycle. So that's what these funds do is kind of I mean, Brittany and Heather are going to be able to speak to like very specific examples of how we use those funds. But I know that um, the need is great. And even though we raised $50,000 last year and were able to make a huge impact, um, Mm -hmm. the need is continuing to grow, unfortunately. So, um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Threads of Hope. We hope everybody can join us. It's going to be super fun. Um, But yeah, October... 12th, 5.30 at the barn at Blue Sky Farms. Awesome. Well, let's linger on that um, that uh, piece of information that the, the need is growing. Um, can you give us a little bit of context of just, just how pervasive of an issue is domestic violence in Gaston County? So I will just say that we pulled data from last year and there were over 6,000 calls for service that came through our 911 system um, that were people who were experiencing intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. So it could have been a sex assault or it could have been um, you know, a dating relationship, but that's, that number is growing. So mm-hmm. that's what it was last year. We are looking at, you know, we pull numbers every so often and it seems to be rising. Brittany, you know how many what it's like at the FJC when you have people walk through the door as far as numbers, I can only speak from a bird's eye view. Yeah. So I think on average, our monthly new intakes, the amount of people that we are engaging with for the first time, it's a, it's averaging about 70. Wow. Um, so that's a lot of people that we're, we're meeting the needs of in the community who haven't previously engaged with us. And yeah. that could be through our community-based services, which is what I manage, but we also have the court-based services. So we come in contact with those uh, people, uh, individuals, families, whomever that are getting protective um domestic violence protective orders mm-hmm. um, to help keep themselves and their children safe. Mm-hmm. And so those numbers can be combined. But yeah, we're averaging about 70 mm-hmm. new intakes that we're, we're seeing each month, which is a lot. And Molly just mentioned the, you know, the data that we're pulling is from 911 calls. Do you find that a lot of people who you interact with are calling the police? How often are, uh, is law enforcement involved in the cases that you work with? I think it really depends. Um, And we luckily have a really good partnership with a lot of the jurisdictions in the county, and those partnerships continue to grow. Um, We actually just recently, over the summer, implemented what we call the DALE. It's a danger assessment with law enforcement. And so it's given uh, the officers that are responding to these domestic calls an 11-question um, assessment basically to ask questions of the survivors so they can get a better feel for how dangerous that situation is that they've just responded to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it screens in, it's supposed to screen in about 30% of the offenders as high risk. And so it puts those people, those individuals on our radar um, for being more dangerous in the community, knowing that we need to really uh, wrap around services for those survivors that they're coming in contact with. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the jurisdictions have had that rollout. If it's not rolled out, they're in the process of the train the trainer program that we've done. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we'll be uh, 
really engaged with even more survivors through law enforcement, which has been an excellent tool for us. Um, and like I said, it just furthers that collaboration and the partnership that we can have with those officers responding. Mm -hmm. That is really incredible. It's a great partnership. And I've heard about the Dale program that y'all have rolled out and it's just, it's really fantastic. And I also just want to underscore, you know, it's kind of rare to have uh, in uh, run by the county, in-house county, domestic violence shelter, domestic violence resource. Um, I mean, do you have some context for anything else in the state that is similar to Hope United Survivor Network? I, when it comes to the shelter, I think we're pretty unique when it comes to being a part of county government, right. because most often counties that you come in contact with, these programs, the, the Children's Advocacy Center, a domestic violence shelter, um, those are typically nonprofits being run in the community um, by um, you know, individuals who have just started with the grassroots operation, gotten a board of directors and are doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, it, you know, it's been interesting to see how it differs from being in a nonprofit realm to being under government. But I think it gives us a great advantage mm -hmm. um, to better serve our community um, and then being able to have the support of the county manager's office, the board of commissioners, giving us the partnerships that we have in the courthouse. Um, we've expanded our services since we opened, quote unquote, opened our doors in March, uh, excuse me, April of 2020, which was in the height of COVID when everything was shutting down. Right. Um, but we've been able to, to continue to meet the needs of the community and grow. Mm -hmm. um, we are not the only family justice center model when it comes to the Hope United um, programming. There are other counties that function uh, with the Family Justice Center model, which mm -hmm. they're doing great things, but we are very unique in that we have a what we like to coin as a Department of Survivor Services, where all of our programs are collaborating together pretty seamlessly day to day. Yeah, yeah. Can we can we zoom out a little bit? Because I think you know we're talking about the Hope United Survivor Network, Family Justice Center, and you just mentioned a model. Yeah, we've got a lot of jargon happening here. Yeah. My my <laughs> jargon alarm is going off. Can you explain what you mean? when you talk about the model and you know there's there I know there's several programs part of Hope United Survivor Network can you give us the lowdown of what those are yeah absolutely so the Family Justice Center model um, is an idea, a model, a program that came out of San Diego with the Alliance for Hope. Um, the idea is that a survivor can enter a building and services be wrapped entirely around them physically, that there would be service providers on site that could physically come around the survivor and meet the needs that they have at that moment. Um, and so when we were first starting to this project, the steering committee, to see if Gaston County would even be a good location, basically, for this model. Um, we had an intern go around. I might flub the statistics here of what the information was. But essentially, um, she was trying, you know, uh, living the life of a survivor with um, two small children, trying to get to safety, get a protection order, get an attorney and apply for public assistance. And I think it took her something like 48 hours and 13 stops across the county to be able to accomplish that. Wow. Um, and so that gave us the backing to say, yes, you know, we aren't doing things as good as we could in this county. And so bringing this model here would eliminate a lot of the barriers for somebody trying to navigate this system that has gaps. Mm -hmm. um, and so the steering committee uh, was involved for a couple years trying to do some planning, get behind it. And then we we opened again, quote unquote, opened our doors in April of 2020. And 
COVID has helped us learn that we can function differently. We don't have to physically be in person to wrap those services around the survivor. We can still do it virtually Mm -hmm. um, and be the legs and the feet of the operation for the survivor. And they don't have to do the 13 stops around the county and try to navigate things on their own. We can do it for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the Family Justice Center model. And then we've been fortunate enough that we had existing programs in the county with the Children's Advocacy Center, the Lighthouse, um, the Kathy Mabry Kloniger Center, the Domestic Violence Shelter. That's been functioning in the county for over 40 years now. Mm -hmm. Um, But the county and the leadership here was able to see that these services are so intertwined that they should be collaborating and be in a department together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've been able to continue that good work Mm -hmm. underneath the umbrella of Hope United Survivor Network as a department. Um, So it's, it's, it's been a great journey. Yeah, and to add a little bit of context um, from the Lighthouse Children's Advocacy Center uh, portion, it also is a uh, model that is somewhat similar to the Family Justice Center model in that um, the idea is to really wrap all of the services around the child and family Mm -hmm. um, throughout their healing journey, um, regardless of what trauma or abuse they've been through. Um, They really get to make sure that they're um, reducing the trauma. Um, All of our partners are working together in a multidisciplinary team um, to support that kid and family through their healing journey. Mm -hmm. Um, Similarly, it's um, an accredited um, process through National Children's Alliance. um, And Gaston County has been um, a great support. Um, We've been open since 2016. um, And really having that um, kind of county backing and um, programming allows us to do much more um, with staff with funds um, and our community is able to really pitch in. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I'm, I know people will be really happy to know that this resource exists in Gaston County. I think, sorry, really quickly, just expanding on what they're saying in, in the context of Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The other thing that we realized in doing the study and looking at our community holistically is that not every survivor is going to seek shelter, um, that there are people in the community that we can make safer and have better outcomes for um, if we give them what they need instead of what we are saying, oh, we know that the most dangerous time for a survivor is in the two weeks after they leave a domestic violence situation. That is when they are 70 times more likely to die of a homicide. Um, And so sometimes leaving isn't the answer, but what we have been able to do through Brittany's uh, work and her team's work at the Family Justice Center is make sure that leaving is not an event, it's a plan. So it is well thought out that we have better outcomes because they are survivor-driven outcomes, if that makes sense. That does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a really great pivot into talking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the the month of October. Um, So would one of you be willing to talk a little bit about what we're trying to bring awareness to? Sure. Molly, we could tag team it if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> so I think a big we have a big push right now just for education in the community, period. Okay. Um, knowledge is power, right? So we want to continue with that kind of mindset. The biggest thing that we've seen recently and are really trying to hone in on is strangulation. Um, and I think the work with the um, danger assessment with law enforcement opens up that door a little bit. What we know is that um, if an abuser is willing to strangle or put pressure of any kind on their victim's neck, um, that they are saying loud and clear that I am dangerous and I'm capable of harming someone and I am willing to put someone's life within minutes of losing it. So hmm. that tells us how dangerous they are. And how do you how do we know this? Is, is, is this part of, you know, statistical research or? Yeah. And so we know that when someone is willing to strangle that 
the victim then is now 750 times more likely to die at the hands of their abuser and also by gunshot. Wow. And so what that tells us, too, is that that person's dangerous for the law enforcement response. And so having somebody that we can label or identify as being a high-risk offender allows law enforcement to also take additional safety measures when they're responding to that home if we know that that person has been um, capable and willing to put their hands on on their partner's neck or mm-hmm. somebody in their lives neck mm-hmm. um, and take those measures. And so that's been a big push is that we share that with every um, survivor that we come in contact with. We give that statistic not to scare them, but to empower them to let them know that, yeah, maybe that situation didn't feel so scary because he pushed me against the wall and applied pressure to my neck for two seconds. It was no big deal. Now, hang on a minute. That is a big deal Mm -hmm. because what you've just said, you've said, you know, a lot about what he's willing to do um, and the measures that he's willing to take even just to scare you. And so we want to empower all of the survivors that we come in contact with with that information so that they know these are warning signs. This person is dangerous and Mm -hmm. I need, you know, let's look at this a little bit closer to see what resources are available in the community for me. And then that's where we can step in. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I'll say, too, is when somebody is involved with our agency, with the domestic violence shelter, of course, they're they're needing shelter, they're needing safety in that moment. But to be served by the Family Justice Center model, they don't have to be willing to leave their abusive situation. Mm-hmm. If they are just wanting to know the resources and have that knowledge and get that education behind them, and as Molly shared, make a plan instead of it being an event, we will serve that survivor um, and, and, and try to make that plan with them. So there doesn't have to be that imminent risk with them. And it could be that they just want the knowledge before they actually step out of the situation and we can guide them through that. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, there's yeah. so many different levels, I guess you could think of Mm -hmm. so many different levels of abuse Mm -hmm. and people have different, you know, people are just at different phases in their lives. Maybe not everyone's able or willing to Mm -hmm. make the same steps. Right. Well, and we know too, statistically, that one in four women will have been touched by domestic violence in their lifetime. Wow. Um, And so that's another beautiful thing about our program is that there doesn't have to be that imminent risk. They could have had um, a domestic violence situation that they were a part of 30 years ago and something's come up recently and they want counseling for it. Well, we'll do that for you. You know, whatever it is that we can support you in your journey, whether it was 30 years ago or or three minutes ago, we want to be there. Are there any other warning signs that you're kind of on the lookout for that are kind of red flags of this could be a domestic violence situation or that kind of thing? So one of the tools that we use is called the power and control wheel. If you are look, if you are someone listening to this podcast and you are man, woman, child, whoever, and you are wondering if the relationship that you're in could be abusive because one of the other focuses that we talk about during Domestic Violence Awareness Month is that it is not always physical. Um, Oftentimes it is some of the warning signs on the power control wheel. And the ones that I always like to touch on are the isolation factor. So when you get into a new relationship, um, often it's exciting and you want to be with them all the time. But then when that becomes a pattern and it's utilized to gain or maintain power and control over you, then that's going to send up those red flags. So let's say, Elizabeth, you and I hang out every Friday and that's you know just what we do. We mm-hmm. always have. And now I'm in a relationship and my boyfriend or my girlfriend is saying, you don't need to hang out with Elizabeth. Um, she's uh, Fridays are for us. Like that's when I want to relax and I just want to be with you. Um, and I start pushing you away. Right. And you're somebody who maybe previously would have stood up and said, Molly, 
what are you doing? Like this guy sounds like he's being controlling. But as I, as my abuser is isolating me from those who care about me, it is much easier to perpetrate violence um, against me if nobody's there to say, hey, mm-hmm. that's not right. 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 Um, so that's a huge warning sign. The other thing that we um, talk about is like the minimize, deny and blame. So maybe it is. It, we've heard this time and time again through the work at the shelter and at the uh, at the Family Justice Center. A survivor might say, yes, he, he yells at me and he pushes me, but he's never broken a bone. And it's like that came straight from the abuser's mouth. It's like, well, look over here. This is what so-and-so is doing to their partner. It doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but minimizing it to try to, like, justify um, is a huge warning sign um, when we talk about teen dating violence mm-hmm. and um, and kind of prevention me- measures, um, we talk a lot about the isolation, the minimized deny and blame, and a lot of it is now perpetrated on um, social media, right? Mm. So that gives wow. somebody a much larger platform to do whatever it is that they're doing. So if it is the name calling, if it is sharing pictures, whatever the case may be, if I stood in this room right now and said, you know, so-and-so is a bad person and here's why, only the people in this room and the people listening to the podcast, frankly, would hear me say that. But if I get on Facebook and I say the same thing about them and I give all the reasons why they're a bad person, then their mom has seen it, their grandma has seen it, their teachers have seen it, everybody. It gives them a much larger platform to perpetrate um, and And I'm probably, as if I was in that relationship, if I knew that the possibility of them sharing something personal or private on social media was was there, I probably would do what they said, mm. you know? Yeah. So those are a few of the warning signs. On the shelter's Facebook page, we're going to continue to put out um, warning signs, and a lot of them are not physical. And we have heard story after story, not here necessarily in Gaston County, but where, you know, we have you know, a a terrible tragedy and the family is saying, well, he never hit her or he or she never hit him. Yeah. Um, It was never physical, but then it, it doesn't matter. It ended in homicide. So however we can prevent, we're here to do. And that's why we have things like Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Yeah. Um, And I do think it's important to, to also say that survivors of domestic violence, they're men, they're women, um, they're in same-sex relationships. They are in heterosexual relationships. There is no model survivor, yeah. right? No, none of them look the same. None of them act the same. A lot of them have very different paths, yet have found themselves in these types of relationships. If there's one stereotype about domestic violence that you could just bust once and for all, what would it be? Leaving solves the problem. Mm-hmm. That makes everything a lot more complicated. And I, Brittany sees this probably every single day and Heather um, and our court-based staff. Leaving just sets into motion and brings to the surface all of the things that maybe they thought they could keep down inside. So yeah. then, then it's like you have to deal with it. You have to potentially get the protective order. You've got to start to do all the things. And quite frankly, sometimes survivors are safer in that relationship because Mm. of the statistics that we have that leaving is the most dangerous time. Wow. What about y'all? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think um, from the kind of child's perspective, I think sometimes we minimize or don't think about the um, impacts on the kids and Mm. um, impact of 
not only how that's affecting them in the moment, but how that's going to affect them as they get older, get into their own relationships um, and become adults. Um, so, you know, being witness to or um, living in a household um, in which domestic violence exists um, really does put that kid at much higher risk of being um, some type of uh, trauma victim themselves, um, whether it puts them at higher risk of being physically abused, sexually abused, um, engaging in unhealthy relationships as they're getting older, um, and then even into their own adulthood. Mm -hmm. What about you, Brittany? Do you have any stereotypes about domestic violence that you would bust if you could? Uh, no, I mean, I think my colleagues here have kind of nailed it on the head. They yeah. both had really good perspectives and things to share. So. Yeah. And just yeah. for editing purposes, I just want to go back and say um, that it doesn't mean that people shouldn't leave. It just means there are safer ways to get out besides the very traditional way of, you you know, you tell your friends or family about it and they're like, well, just leave, just go. Right. Um, and just knowing that the resources are here, that, that Gaston County really does have a robust response to yeah. domestic violence. And it yeah. does... It's survivor-driven, so it gives the power back to the survivor. So when you are ready to leave, when you have thought out a plan and hopefully worked with, you know, one of our different programs and we have something, you know, very concrete, very easy to follow, very safe, mm -hmm. then then you can talk about leaving. Right. But it's not the, the only solution. I mean, if it was, if that really solved the problem, then it would be so easy to leave. Mm -hmm. Everyone who had an inkling of a, of a domestic violence issue would just leave. Mm -hmm. But I think that survivors innately know mm -hmm. that just leaving is not really going to solve the whole problem, which is... Yeah, and we, why people don't always. <laughs> we <laughs> ask the question all the time. Yeah. Why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't he leave? Yeah. But we never, As if it was just that easy. Right. right. But yeah. we never say, why does he abuse? Why does she abuse? Like, right. that's the bigger question, right? Yeah. Like, we can leave all day long, but, you know, then that person's going to find another uh, partner and perpetrate violence against them. And so it is very cyclical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about... Um, I don't know, like the short and long term impacts of domestic violence. Maybe we can start on the level of a child and work our way to adulthood. Yeah, the um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it really has lots of impacts on children. Um, anytime they're around um, or witnessing any type of violence, um, puts them at a much higher risk of. Um, being abused, um, being in unhealthy relationships, which in turn can also increase their likelihood of um, being incarcerated, um, increase teen pregnancy rates, um, increase their chance of being um, involved in unhealthy relationships or um, learning um, unhealthy coping skills. Um, therefore, that can sometimes increase the likelihood of substance use or um, the mental health issues, if they're not having access to um, therapy services at a young age. Um, and then um, sometimes it becomes the mentality of not reporting it. So um, keeping things within the family um, and kind of the basis or um, idea that you shouldn't go share and talk and um, really from kind of from my lens, um, October is so important for us to be talking about this. Um, bringing awareness to um, how it impacts all the way from um, infancy uh, through adulthood so that um, nobody's afraid to talk about it. And what about the long-term effects of domestic violence on an adult? So 
what we know about the impacts of domestic violence are it, they are um, it impacts our workforce, so it impacts our economy. I don't have the dollar amount off the top of my head. I could look it up, but um, the amount of time that is lost, amount of work time that is lost um, in this country widespread because of domestic violence. So uh, back to the power and control wheel, oftentimes if you have a job, you have some kind of income. And if you have income, you have some kind of freedom you can leave, right? It puts that leaving back into being a something that would be possible. Oftentimes abusers will keep that uh, keep their partner from working or make it very difficult. So maybe as a means of power and control, you can only work the job I say you can work. So your earning potential is probably not going to be as much. And if I say you can work, you can work when I I say you can, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to watch the kids for you. I'm not going to pay for daycare and I'm not going to provide transportation. So it's, you know, often we'll see survivors that will get a job, but it's hard to keep a job because of all of these barriers, Mm -hmm. which is again, why programs like the Family Justice Center, the Lighthouse and the Kathy Mabry Kloniger Center exist is and events like Threads of Hope to to find those barriers, identify them and fix it for the survivor um, if possible. If it is just a matter of one of those things and then they can continue to live their life abuse-free and and start on their healing journey, then that is something that we are absolutely willing to do. Um, Things like self-esteem, you know, the abusers are savvy, right? So they know over the course of the relationship, they've done things here and there that have been manipulative and have taken things away slowly but surely. And so oftentimes we have survivors that we're engaging with and they're like, I haven't had access to money in 10 years. And it's easy for someone like us to look on the other side and go, 10 years, you know, you haven't had access to money, but it happens so quickly, but, oh, and also strategically over time that it's like, you don't even realize that that's been taken away from you. Mm. Um, And so then also thinking about the self-esteem, how it relates to once they are able to leave or planning to leave, then the, the confidence is gone that they can even use money anymore. Like, be able to earn the money, being able to spend it appropriately um, or in a budget-friendly way that's going to have a better impact for their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always the um, negativity, the downplaying, the that voice in their head stays. So somebody could have left, but if their abuser was as savvy as we know that they are, that voice stays in their head for years at a time. And so it really takes a really good therapeutic intervention to be able to break down that voice and allow the survivor to hear her own voice again, his or hers. But we know statistically it's generally women that are survivors. Um, But to be able to hear their own voice and gain that confidence back. Um, And that's a lifelong journey. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if, if you left that situation years ago, that aspect of and hold on your self-esteem and your confidence can can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If you could share one message of hope to someone who's listening, um, what would you say to them? Mm. Our tagline is hope is here. Mm-hmm. And, and when we say it, we mean it. So, mm-hmm. and your definition of what, like Brittany, going back to, uh, you know, self-esteem and what all has been taken from these individuals, hope, that whatever it was taken can be restored, it truly is here. Like we are, 
non-judgmental. We are going to help you. We are going to wrap services around you. We're going to play the what if game with you. And if at the end of the day, you say, I'm just not ready, but I'm glad I have this resource. And I'm glad that there is a glimmer of, of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, then our, our existence is justified. And so uh, hope is here is our tagline. We mean it. Um, when we say it and we hope that hope <laughs> that we can provide services to everyone that needs it. Yeah. And I would really just echo that. I mean, you are going to, um, anyone who is seeking hope um, and wants assistance in whatever way they're ready for, there is a group of people who genuinely care about you um, and are going to do everything in their power to make things better for you. Um, so it's, it, it is a tagline, but it's not just a tagline mm-hmm. because the people behind it live it and mean it and are going to do everything they can for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Molly, Brittany, and Heather. I appreciate y'all taking your time to come out here, um, talk about Domestic Violence Awareness Month and also Threads of Hope, which is going to be on October 12th. You can get your tickets online. Um, and support Hope United Survivor Network. Um, Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you all again next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Savvy Citizen Podcast. It's produced by the Gaston County Communications Office with hosts Janet Schaefer, Dandrea Bradley, Elizabeth McGee, and Adam Gobb. Joshua Braswell serves as executive producer, and Gavin Stewart serves as field reporter and producer. Please like us and share reviews on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you get your podcasts.